We are in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Let's go before the Lord with a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Lord, we want you to be our teacher tonight. We want you to instruct us in things everlasting. And as we continue just to make our way through the word of God tonight, I pray that your spirit would lead us into all truth that we would be able to reflect on the things that, are, that we sang about in worship, that we just declared, and Lord, the things that you speak to us in the word, and Lord, we'd be more like you tonight by the time we have here this evening. So speak into our lives. I thank you for the great privilege it is every time myself and Pastor Rob get to open up the word with these precious men and women. We count it a great, great privilege. So be with us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel. And remember, remember, remember that 1 Samuel, the content of, can remember by remembering, that's a lot of remembers, three people. Three people. This book is about Samuel, the prophet, the final judge of the nation of Israel. And we saw his life and ministry in the first seven chapters. We saw his upbringing and the things that he had to deal with. Plus, we also saw the world that he lived in and the world he had to minister in there in those first seven chapters. And then last week, we kind of switched gears and we got to the second person the book of Samuel is about, and that is Saul the first king over Israel. And last week we saw how Israel rejected God ruling over them because they wanted a king to be like every other nation. And even though God warned them this will not turn out for good, they demanded a king and a king they certainly received. So last week we met King Saul and we saw how he started out really good. He was humble. He was anointed. He was called by God for service and really prepared by the word of God and the spirit of God. He was loving. When the men of Kirjath-Jerim were in trouble, Saul put an army together and went all night to come to their defense. But as we noticed last week, (laughs) this all was on basically day one of his kingship. And from day one, it was downhill from that moment forward. Because even though Saul was warned at his very own coronation to cling to the Lord, to keep walking with the Lord, yet as we get to the story tonight, we're going to see some serious character flaws in King Saul. Some serious character flaws that will eventually lead to his demise. And I think it's important for us to consider for our lives tonight. Because really, you and I can go one of two ways. We can stay humble We can stay in the word. We can stay filled with the spirit. We can stay loving and kind to people or we can end up like Saul. And I think every one of us needs to do a little self-inspection tonight to see if these character flaws of Saul are starting to rear their ugly head in our own lives and then say, Lord, weed those things out of me. So what are they? Well, five, if you're taking notes tonight, five things we're going to see in Saul that we want to see done away with in our own heart and our own life. Those are, number one, the fact that Saul was insecure. I'm going to go over the list, and then I don't know if it's... When I, when I did the slide, it was hard to see. So those guys have tried to help me out and fix it, but I'll read it to you. Number one, Saul was insecure. Secondly, Saul was impatient. 
He was impatient. Thirdly, he was complacent in duty. Complacent in duty. Number four, he was foolish as a leader. And then finally, Saul was disobedient to God. And if you missed any of those, we're going to go through them as we always do, one at a time. Starting with this one. Saul was insecure. Look with me in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination of the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. It's kind of hard to see in the English. In fact, if you have a New Living Translation or a New American Standard, verse 1 says something totally different than what I read to you. (laughs) Those versions say that it actually tells you how long Saul reigned, that he reigned for 42 years. And the reason is there's a discrepancy in what the Hebrew is saying. It's not super clear. And we'll get to why in just a few minutes. But I personally believe what the word is telling us is that everything good that happened in Saul's life, in other words, everything we learned about last week, that he was humble, that he was filled with the spirit for a bit, that he was taught by the word in an instant, that that he was loving in that first act as king, that those things all encompassed max a two-year period in Saul's kingship. Now, we know that he was king for 40 years. We know that from Acts chapter 13, verse 21. Acts 13, 21, there's no discrepancy in the Greek. Saul reigned for 40 years. Two years of that reign was all right. But then 38 years was misery for the nation of Israel. And one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons it was misery is what we read in verses 3 and 4. Jonathan, who was his son, Saul's son, a young general at this time in Israel's history, he was leading a thousand men. And Jonathan took them into battle against the Philistines and he won a great victory. But notice, notice, Saul blew the trumpet. Saul took the credit. For in verse 4, it says the people heard that Saul had defeated the Philistines. Now, is that what happened? No. It was Jonathan that had defeated the Philistines, but Saul makes sure he gets the credit. And what we see here is a glimpse of something that will become obvious and blatant when we get to the life of David starting this weekend and as we go through the word in its entirety on Wednesday nights, next Wednesday night. Saul, he derives his entire significance from what people think about him. So instead of saying that, hey, Jonathan, my son, he won the battle, we're blessed to have him on our side, Saul takes credit for Jonathan's victory. Listen to me, precious church. Someone who always needs credit for everything someone else is doing will never be blessed in life and ministry. You just won't. Proverbs 16, 18 says it clear that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Saul started out humble, but now he's taking credit for things he didn't do and needing to be affirmed all the time. And because of that, he's on a slippery slope. Maybe you heard about the frog whose pond was drying up. 
And, 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 and he realized that if that pond was to completely dry up, he was going to die. His days were numbered as a frog. So he came up with a brilliant plan. He said, I'm going to put a stick in my mouth. And you birds, he was talking to a couple of ducks that were sharing the little pond with him. He said, here's what we're going to do. You, you, you take the stick in both of your, whatever, claws, feet, webbed feet. Anyways, you, you, I wasn't there when this happened. But um, you, you, you go ahead and you, you grab this, this true story. You go ahead and grab this stick and, and, and I'm going to put it in my mouth and then you can fly me to a nice deep pond where we can all live happily ever after. And the ducks in this true story said, okay, let's go ahead and do that. And so the frog put this stick in his mouth and the ducks grabbed either side of the stick and they went flying towards a deeper, you know, more lush pond to be in. And, and a farmer at that time walked out of his house and he said, oh, I have never seen such a thing. I've never seen, I mean, who has ever seen a frog being carried with a stick in his mouth by two ducks? And he said, I wonder whose idea that was. And the frog just couldn't resist. He said, it was mine. And that was the end of Kermit. That's the untold Jim Henson story. But anyways, that was the end of Kermit. Why? Because a haughty spirit comes before a fall. And listen, what happened to that poor little frog? will happen to you and me when we stop realizing it's all God's grace and goodness. Do you realize that, friends? The good things we experience in our life, it is all God's grace and goodness. Well, I, I tried hard. Yeah, and who told you to try hard? Who told you to, to get into the word and, and, and say no to sin? That was the Lord. It's all his grace and goodness. I am who I am. You are who you are because of who we are in Christ, not because of who people say that we are. We don't always have to be affirmed. We don't always have to take credit. And that insecurity, or a better way to say it, pride, that will destroy you so fast. Insecurity was deadly for Saul, but his flaws didn't stop there. Secondly, we see not only was he insecure, but he was also, he was impatient. Look at verse 5. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, the people were hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people following him were trembling. That's not a good leader when all the people following you are afraid. Verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and he, he, he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? When I saw the people, Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from among me, that you did not come within the days appointed that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I, then I said, the Philistines will now come on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded for you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall, shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. That's the series we're starting this weekend. And the Lord has commanded him to be a commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. 
Then Samuel arose and went from Gilgal to Gibeah at Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people with him, about 600 men, and Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people presented themselves, remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road uh, to Orpah and the, and the, the land of, of Shual, and another company turned to the road of Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road border that overlooks the valley of, of Zubian toward the wilderness. Now there were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all Israel would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock and his axe and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for a plowshare, which we know what that is because we use pims all the time. And the mattock and the forks and the axes to set points for the goads. And so they came about on the day of battle. There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul or Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. The Philistines, if you remember, we took some time to talk about their background two weeks ago, if you missed that. The Philistines were not originally from the Middle East. They were from the islands around the area of what is now known as Greece. They were from the uh, Aegean Sea. And what history tells us is they came down first invading the, the area of the Hittites, which is what is today Turkey. Then they came down to Egypt and invaded Egypt. They're known in Egyptian history as the Sea Peoples. And they caused great problems with the Hittites and the Egyptians. But eventually the Egyptians, eventually the Hittites, man, chased those Philistines out of their land. And the Philistines settled in what is today Gaza. Now, they're not connected in any way to the Palestinians other than the fact that they live in the same exact territory the Palestinians live in today. They were European, not Middle Eastern in their descent. But these Philistines were a radical fighting force. At the very end of this chapter, we read that they wouldn't let the children of Israel even have a sword in their hand. They controlled all the blacksmiths. They were experts in the process of making iron weapons. And so they would not let the Israelites understand the process, have the process. And so they would not let blades come into the camp. Now we can understand why. That's a great military tactic. Don't let your enemy have weapons. Pretty smart. But as I was reading through that, I was just thinking about how our enemy today, how our enemy does the same thing in this day and age. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told that this book, this book that we're studying tonight, is what? The sword of the Spirit. And it's, it's called that. Why? Because we use it like the Romans would use their swords. We use it for defense. David said what? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This book will be a defense against sin in my life and yours. It's one of the reasons we are constantly encouraging you, hide it in your heart. It's a defensive weapon, but it's also offense. As you speak it into people's lives that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, man, lives can be changed by the power of the word of God. It's a defensive weapon. It's an offensive weapon. And our enemy knows that. And because of that, listen, listen, don't be caught off guard. There is an all-out attack in our world against the word of God. I see this even as I go and minister at Calvary Chapel Bible College. You know, sometimes students will ask because they're reading books by popular pastors who just throw out under the guise of having a conversation questions like, do we really know that Moses was a real person? 
Do we really know that he really wrote those first five books of the Bible? Do we really know that John was a real person and wrote the gospel of John? Do we really know there was actually a King Solomon and King David? Are those just political, poetical figures in Israel's history? Do we really know that God wanted to kill all the people of Canaan? Or was that just Israel learning about God from the gods of the pagans? And they, and God, as he progressively revealed himself, oh, by the New Testament, then we get a better picture of God. What do you think? And they pose these questions because somehow it's educational to ask these deep questions. But I see it as the enemy trying to get people to doubt the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Questions that are asked to spark conversations. But what happens often in hearts is as I start to question, well, how do I know who really wrote this? Is it more human than divinely inspired? Eventually I get around to thinking, can I really trust this book to lead my life? Or is there any value in reading this book to lead my life? And can I say to one, as one who has devoted my life to studying this book, especially in the last few years, going back to school to be able to speak the language of the scholars, precious men and women, there is every reason in the world to trust that this book is the inspired, infallible word of God. God meant what he said and says what he means. It's not progressive revelation where the New Testament is a clearer picture of God than the old. Listen, from Genesis to Revelation, God is saying, this is who I am. And wise is the man or the woman that believes this book, studies this book, applies this book to their lives and realizes, yes, the enemy would love nothing more than to take your sword right out of your hand. Because listen, listen, If you don't have God's word to guard you, if you don't have God's word to go on the offense, good luck living this Christian life. I believe the devil would like nothing more for you to try to live for Christ without the influence of God's word and God's spirit. You go right ahead. That's how empty religion is produced. Don't let the enemy take away your sword. The Philistines did this literally. Only two swords existed in the nation of Israel. Saul had one. His son, Jonathan, had one. And you compare that with the fighting force of the Philistines. Verse 5 tells us they had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. Now, in, in what seems to contradict what I just said, if you look at verse 5, there's a little asterisk there next to the 30,000 if you have a study Bible. And it says, in some translations... It could be just 3,000 chariots. So what is it? 30,000? 3,000? From a practical perspective, as we study Egyptian history, they always went to war with between 900 and 4,000 chariots. So 3,000 is probably the actual number. Plus, it goes perfectly with 6,000 horses. 3,000 chariots pulled by 6,000 horses. Two horses for a chariot. And Bible critics will say, you see right there, that's why I can take your sword out of your hand. You can't even trust the numbers that are in there. When we did our Sunday night groundwork series, we talked in depth about this, and you can find those studies online. But Bible critics will point out that there are thousands of contradictions in the Bible. And what they mean by that is there are contradictions in how one scribe copied the original text and how another scribe copied it. And listen, on occasion, they're right. I don't want to hide that from you. But you need to know, Bible students, the differences are not contradictions. They're always something like what is in front of us tonight. 
word order, spelling of a king's name, whether it was 30,000 or 3,000. Doctrine is never changed. Things we know about God are never affected in the slightest. Pastor Jason, you're scaring me. Are you saying God's word isn't inspired perfectly by God? Of course not. When God inspired the original author Samuel in this case, I have no doubt Samuel wrote down the correct number. It was those that copied it later that one copied it one way, one copied it another. Why did that happen? Personally, I believe because it's the third time in this book something like that has happened. If you remember back in chapter 6, there's a debate. Did God kill 50,070 people in Beth Shemesh because they opened up the ark and looked in? Or did he kill 70 out of 50,000? We're not sure. The Hebrew isn't exactly clear. In chapter 13, is Samuel telling us that he reigned for 42 years or after two years, then the decline happened? We're not exactly sure. Just a few verses later, is it 30,000 or 3,000? You know what I think? I think Samuel had poor handwriting. That's what I think. As someone who this is the problem with me, I just want, because listen, listen, all the time after church, someone says to me, what's your phone number? And I write it down and they say, is that a two or a seven? That happens to me every time I write down my phone number. Not, 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 not sometimes, every single time. Now listen, I know what my phone number is. When I wrote it down, I wrote it down correctly. The fact that he can't read it doesn't mean I didn't write the number down correctly. My handwriting is bad. So I believe Samuel was perfectly inspired by God, but occasionally, nothing dealing with doctrine, nothing dealing with how God is or how he loves people, but with number order, whether that's a two or a seven, possibly copied down incorrectly. Listen, you can trust this book because unlike other religious books that say things like the sun sets in a mud pool every night, stuff like that's in the Quran, or the fact that there are people living on the moon, as it said, used to say, in the Doctrine of Covenants until they edited that out. This book has never been edited for content. This book has never been corrected. This book doesn't say any silly thing about the Lord. This book can be trusted. The only thing the critic has to hold on to is there are some passages where we're not 100% sure, was it 30,000 or 3,000? But again, it changes nothing. Because the point of the passage is, Israel was way outnumbered. If they had 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horses and men without number, and Saul and Jonathan have two swords, do you see how it doesn't matter? (laughs) Either way, Israel is in really big trouble. 3,000, 30,000. The point is, they didn't have three swords. So you understand why they're scared. Samuel tells him, we'll meet in seven days. We'll meet in seven days, Saul. We'll meet in seven days and I will sacrifice to the Lord. And it might not be apparent to you, but in Israel, listen, there were distinct roles. A a, a king was supposed to do something. A priest was supposed to do something. A prophet was supposed to do something. And those roles were to be separate and set apart. But Saul waits and waits. And just before Samuel arrives, he moves ahead of Samuel and really the Lord... And he, as king, begins to offer sacrifices. And then Samuel shows up and says, what are you doing? Because you could not wait for the Lord's timing, Saul. God is taking your kingdom away. Now, you and I might say, what in the world? Why is that a big deal? Why is that a big deal? Friends, it is essential in life, in ministry, in leadership, in the service of the Lord to be able to trust and wait on the Lord's timing. Think of all the problems in Scripture that happened because men and women have moved out ahead of the Lord. God promised Abraham a son. 
(laughs) Yes, it seemed like the Lord was way late on that timing. But that simply wasn't the case. And then Abraham and Sarah, what do they do? They move out to help God out. Oh, Lord, you're just, you need our help to fulfill your will. <laughs> you need our help to fulfill your word. Let me help you out with that. And, 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 and Hagar is introduced to the process. And Ishmael comes about. Did that cause any problems? Friend, you can turn on the news tonight. Tonight. 4,000 years after the mistake. And there are still problems tonight. Because Abraham and Sarah said, oh, you know, let's not wait for God's timing. This is an issue. Just a few weeks ago, last week, we learned that the the nation of Israel said, we will have a king. And God's heart was, I want to give you a king. I told you in Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 18, I'm going to give you a king. No, we want him now. And so they didn't get the man after God's own heart. They eventually did. But for 40 years, they're stuck with Saul. And it's 38 years of which are a disaster. Think about your own life. Think about your own heart. How many times have you moved out ahead of the Lord, done your own thing, gone your, done your, gone your own way? Does it ever work out? No. It always causes undue pain. Listen, if you want to lead, you need to learn to follow God and follow his timing and his plan. But why does he make me wait? <laughs> why is there always a gap between the promise and the fulfillment? Because like we talked about last week, God is working on you. You. And what he is doing in you is really far more important than what he's doing in the scheme of history. He's working on you. He loves you so much to not just rush the process in you. As I I believe Pastor Rob taught us just recently, we are his, what, masterpiece, Ephesians chapter 2 says. His poema. And God takes time to work. He's not just putting it together. You know, that's good. There's another one. That's good. He is taking time to shape and mold, and he's not spitting on you like I just did. He's not doing that. He's shaping and molding, and, and sometimes it's not, it's not fun, and sometimes it takes longer than we expect. In fact, always it seems to take longer than we expect, but the Lord loves you. He's working in you. Don't be like Saul. Already, here's two things I need the Lord to weed out of my heart, insecurities and impatience. Maybe I'm alone on this tonight, but maybe you want to circle that in your own heart too and say, Lord, weed these things out of my heart. The third one we see that was a problem with Saul is he was complacent in duty. Look at chapter 14. Now it happened that one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young men who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And then, uh, then Ahia, son of, of Ahatub, <laughs> Haitub, which is brother to Ahatub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes, which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the other was, was, was Sonid. And, and, the, and the front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. And then Jonathan said to the young men who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of the uns- circumcised and it may be i love this it may be that the lord will work for us for nothing restrains the lord from saving by many or by few 
So his armor bearer, love him too, said, do all that is in your heart. Go then. Here, I am with you according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we'll show ourselves to them. And if they say thus to us, they're going to set up a little test here. If they say, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes, little gophers popping up where they have hidden. And then verse 12, the men of the garrison called to Jonathan, his armor bearer, and said, come up to us, and we will show you something. There it was. That was the line they were waiting for. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up onto his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. And the first slaughter which Jonathan and armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, among all all the people and the garrison and the raiders were also trembled and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchman of Saul, check this out. Here's Saul now. Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and there was the multitude melting away. He sees they're just being slaughtered right hand and left. And then he, and they went here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who's gone from us. And when they called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And, and, then, and then Saul said to Agi, he said, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark was, was, was with the children of Israel. Now it happened when Saul talked to the priest, the noise was on the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So that Saul said to his priest, withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they were went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was a very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country there also joined Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan and likewise all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim who heard the Philistines fled they followed hard after them in battle so the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth Avon so the scene is here remember probably 3,000 chariots 6,000 horsemen, soldiers that you couldn't even number as you looked at them. The Philistine army is all around, and the people of Israel hunkered down like little gophers in holes. And yet, we find Saul in this horrible situation. He's not praying. He's not planning. What's he doing? He's just sitting under a pomegranate tree. I love the detail of the word of God. Like, why did God have to tell us what kind of tree it was? But anyways, he's sitting there just enjoying a pomegranate. Eh. Hey, at least they're not a cat. Well, at least they're not killing us. At least everything's okay. Saul is just fine with the status quo. And when he hears the battle, verse 18, he goes and asks the Lord, Lord, are you in this? First, he like takes a survey of who's here. He, 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 think this through with me. He's watching probably at least 20,000 soldiers start to be decimated right in front of him. And he's going, who's missing from our camp? Instead of saying, I don't know how this is going, but let's do it. Let's, 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 let's go after this. No, he doesn't say that. He says, who's missing? And he, and he does a survey. He finds out it's Jonathan, his armor bearer. And then, and then the, the battle is raging. He's like, let's ask the Lord whether this is him or not. Are you kidding me? Are you, I, mean, I, I picture the priest saying, what do you want me to ask the Lord? If the Lord is in this destruction of our enemies, is this the Lord's doing? 
You mean what we've all been praying for? <laughs> you mean everything we've been fasting that God would do? Is this the Lord in this? You really want me to ask this of the Lord? I just see the priest going, Oy vey, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Where do we get this kind of king? He just, well, let me ask the Lord. Let me see who's missing. And by the time he decides to get in the battle, the battle's already won. And you contrast that with his son, Jonathan, who says in verse 6, the Lord can win with many or few. I love that. Jonathan's like, why would I put any kind of box on God? You know, and again, we read this sometimes with our latte in our hand or snug in our little comfy chairs here on Wednesday night. And we say, oh, yeah, what faith Jonathan had. Are you kidding me? 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, an equal amount, no doubt, and foot soldiers. This could be 20,000 soldiers and two guys decide to take that on. That's called suicide is what that's called. That's not just great faith. That's crazy kind of faith. But as I was reading that, I was thinking, what Jonathan must have counted God for? Do you hear that? I mean, here he is. Jonathan's a reasonable guy. He doesn't really think he's going to cut down 20,000 people by himself. He knows he can't do that. So who is he counting on? His own one one of two swords in 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 the country? He's counting on the Lord. He's counting on the Lord. You see, what do you count God for in your life? Because these tools of the enemy, this fear, insecurities, complacency, impatience, the Lord will use that in my life. The Lord, the the enemy, sorry, not the Lord, the enemy will use that in your life to rip off who you are, to steal your joy, to get you all confused and disconcerted. And we need to constantly remind ourselves, who is the Lord that you and I serve? Is he the one that said, let there be light and light just appeared? That's crazy big. Is he the one that says to the oceans, stop here, and they do? Is he the one that parted the Red Sea and actually stacked water on top of each other and had the people walk through on dry ground? Is that the God that you serve? Because, friends, that's the God in this book. That's the God of the book who there's no discrepancies about, no word order difference. We are very clear on who God is. He is amazing. He is sufficient for what you're facing tonight. Oh, but I got problems at work. Do you know God's not worried about those problems? Do you know God's not in heaven going, you know, that is one I cannot fix. (laughs) There was nothing, and then there was something, because I spoke. But what you're dealing with, kind of outside my pay grade. Do you think the Lord talks that way? Oh, Lord, my marriage, they're good. You think the Lord's like, ah, I don't know how the marriage is going to work out. Are you kidding me? Your God is sufficient. Now, whether you choose to trust him or not, now there's the question. Whether you choose to lean on him or not, there's the question. Whether you choose to sit back like like Saul and just say, well, I'm okay with status quo, that's the question. There's nothing, nothing, nothing wrong with the God that we serve. There is nothing that he cannot do and not accomplish. And there is a choice we have to be to be Jonathan instead of Saul who just says, guess it can't get better than this. I'm living carnal in bondage to sin. I've never, you know, I've, I have never affected anyone else's life. We'll never reach North County. What do you count God for? 
Because if you count them like Jonathan does, listen, there is no sin he cannot overcome. There is no end to which he cannot do. There is no one he cannot reach. What do you count God for, precious church? We don't want to be like Saul. We want to be like Jonathan. Now, maybe you say, well, I just, I don't know if I have that kind of faith. I don't know if I can just trust the Lord for big things in my life. Then will you and I make a decision to at least be like Jonathan's armor bearer? Do you hear me on that? Maybe you can say, I don't have that kind of faith. The armor bearer said, whatever the Lord's telling you, that's what we're going to do. You've got the faith, so I'm going to cling to my Lord I'm going to cling to the promises he's made to you and we are going to step out in faith together. It's a great question. What do we count God for? Well, it gets worse for Saul. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. It doesn't get better. It never gets better, actually, with Saul. Verse 24. Then the men of Israel were distressed all that day. They just won a victory. Why are they distressed? Well, here's why. For Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Saul, not to spiritually prepare the people, Saul, for his own glory, for his own glory, he says, Nobody eats any food while the battle's going on. And the people are bummed, even though there's a great victory. Keep reading. Verse 25, Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. Oh, just dripping right in front of them. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. That's why they're miserable. Verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard his father's charge of the people, his oath. Therefore, he, re- he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. And then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day and the people were faint but Jonathan said my father has troubled the land how do you really feel Jonathan look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little honey how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found for now they would for now there would have been a much great slaughter among the Philistines and they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon, and the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil. They took the sheep and the oxen and the calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Ugh. Verse 33. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people ate, are, are sinning against the Lord and eating with the blood. And he said, You've dealt treacherously. <laughs> no, you have, bud. Roll a large stone to me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring here every man's ox and every man's sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so every one of the people brought out his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. And this was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Oh, okay. Verse 36. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and, and, and let us not have a man with them. And, and, and they said, do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, let us draw near, to, near to, to God here. So Saul asked counsel of the Lord, shall I go after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand? But God did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs and people, and know and see what sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, really, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. (laughs) They knew who it was. And then he said to all Israel, you will be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other. And the people said, 
Okay, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between my son, Jonathan, and me. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I tasted a little honey with the end of my rod that was in my hand. So now I must die? Should really be a question mark there. Should I die? Foolish leader. Foolish father. Verse 44, Saul answered, God, do so, to, do so more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, So Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. And Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, from the Philistines went to their own place. And Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought everyone against his enemy on every side of Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobab, against the Philistines, where Wherever he turned, he harassed them, and he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who pursued them. And the sons of Saul were all these kind of guys in the list. All right, there we go. So the fourth thing that we notice about Saul is the fact that Saul was a foolish leader. Another character flaw is this guy is just a foolish leader, and we see this in two cases in the verses we just read. First of all, he declares in the midst of the battle that no one's to eat food. Again, not to prepare people spiritually. It's good to take a day and fast to prepare your heart spiritually. That's not why he's doing it. He says, so that I can have vengeance on my enemies. It's for his own glory. And listen, listen, listen. It's in the midst of the battle. These guys are running. They're fighting. They're killing. They need fuel for this. And we see the effects of Saul's foolish vow. Because the minute they get around some poor little sheepies, some poor little cows, they go all caveman style and jump on these animals and just start, just see see the cow like, what are you doing? It's crazy. It's disgusting. And some of you say, well, that's just gross. I don't understand. Uh, I don't don't understand what would make someone eat an animal just before it had been cooked properly. If, If you really believe that, all I have to say is you probably have not done an extended fast. That's all I know. Now, share a personal story. Last time I fasted for seven days, I was traveling through security at LAX. As I was traveling through security at LAX, I saw a Cheez-It on the ground. I was fasting. I didn't eat it, but here's what I did. My brain said, oh, praise the Lord, I'm so hungry. And I reached down to grab this Cheez-It off the floor of LAX. I was in stride when I went, what am I doing? What am I, in fact, I, 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 I took a photo of it and I texted my wife and said, I'm so hungry, I almost ate that. She's like, where was that? I'm like, on a push bar in the middle of LAX. And I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And I, I love Jesus. So I, when you haven't eaten for a few days, Anything sounds amazing. Anything sounds amazing. Now, this wasn't a six-day fast, but they were running and fighting, and so it's about the same. So yes, they come onto these animals, and they're like, no time for fire. They're so hungry. But why did they, listen, why did they get there? Because of their leader's foolish vow. He leads the people into spiritual sin, not spiritual greatness. Now, all this time, Jonathan doesn't know what his dad has said. And he sees this honey just dripping. 
And as he partakes, his face brightens up while the rest of the nation falls into sin. As I was reading that again, again, I just see so many pictures in this of the word of God. You know, in Psalm 19, David says the word of God is like honey to our lips. And it really is. I don't know how many times I'm down, I'm depressed, I'm frustrated. And the Lord says, have you, have you been in the word recently? Well, no, no. That won't help anything. And then I open up the word of God. You know this too. It just seems like my countenance lifts. It seems like my heart is redirected. And friend, the enemy, the enemy, your enemy knows this. And it's why I believe it is one of his constant attempts to keep you from the word of God. But as you choose to partake on a regular basis, now listen, if you don't know how to do that, I would love to, Pastor Rob would love to, a lot of our leaders, we would love to sit down and help you learn how to do that, how to get into the word of God. Maybe you have trouble with the New King James Bible. That's okay. You know, there's a Bible called the New Living Translation. I read it every single night. I love it. I love it. Oftentimes I read it and I say, that's not what it says in the New King James. And I look and I go, yes, it does. Oh, my goodness. But it's so much easier to understand. If you're like me, lower reading level, that new, the New Living Translation. Amen. Maybe, maybe for you, you well, you know, I, I have trouble reading it all. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I have trouble reading it all. Audio Bible. Every morning, my son listens to the one-year Bible on an audio Bible. He sits there. Now, he can read, but he's kind of lazy like his father. So he just pushes play, and, and he gets it. Amen. Maybe that's the answer for you. Maybe you don't like the Old Testament. I'm sure you're here tonight, so I don't know what you think. But anyways, maybe you don't like the Old Testament. So start and mark. Get a, get a notebook and just see pictures of Jesus. You know, parts of the Old Testament are dry, which, again, is why I'm a big fan of the one-year Bible. Why would you say that? It makes you read the Old Testament. Yeah, but in 15 minutes, 15 minutes, what is that, half of a sitcom? 15 minutes, what is that? Like, it's nothing. Not only do I read a portion of the Old Testament, which is good for us, but even when we're in those passages of Leviticus, or parts of Ezekiel, that are even laborious for me, that same 15 minutes, I also read a chapter out of the New Testament, and a psalm, and a proverb, and you know what? It's just good. It's just good. I don't, I personally, doesn't bother me what method you choose to read through the word of God. We would love to help you if you don't know how, but your enemy wants to keep you from this book. And he will do anything to keep you from the book that will brighten your heart and keep you from running to sin. Get in this book. You miss a day? God's not mad at you. Get into the book tomorrow. Get into the book. Get into the book. Get in the book. But if we say, well, I got no time for the honey of the word. I have to fight battles today. You'll find yourself down, depressed, easily defeated by our sinful hearts. Saul is so foolish. He's making dumb vows, leading his people into sin. And then, then, second problem, he can't admit when he's wrong. He can't admit. That was probably a dumb idea to have you not eat food while you're in battle. Go ahead and eat the honey. He didn't say that. 
He doesn't say that, even if it means the death of his son. Even when his son stands before him and says, Dad, I took some honey. You're going to lose your son in general over a little bit of honey. Saul can't go, you're right. He goes, yeah, I'm going to kill you. What a foolish guy. Now we can say, no, that's a strong man. That's not a strong man. That's a stupid man. Sorry, I said stupid. My kids aren't allowed to say that word. Every time I say stupid, they say, Dad, you said the S word. Not really. Not really, kids. (laughs) Not really, children. Oh, man. Listen, if sometimes stupid is necessary. And someone who won't admit that they're wrong, I believe you've earned the title of stupid. There's only one person who is perfect, Jesus. And you and I, we're not him. And if you can't go to your wife, to your husband, your kids, your parents, your pastor, your people, and say, you know what? I was wrong. Forgive me. Then you are not a good leader in any way. If you're Jesus, then you never have to say you're sorry. But since you're not, you better, I better, make it a regular part of your vocabulary. Remember, the people that are around you, your kids, people that work with you on a daily basis, they're sinners too. And if they never learn how to repent because you pretend that you're perfect, well, then you've earned the title. Big dummy. There you go. I'll change it. Saul was foolish. Saul was foolish. But, but he made an altar. He made an altar, Jason. You missed that part. He made an altar. We just read it there. He isn't all bad. You know what we call that? We call that the law of averages. That if you live long enough, eventually you're going to do something right. I'm sorry. <laughs> My golf buddies and I stick to each other all the time. We hit a good shot and we're like, yeah. Every once in a while, a blind squirrel finds a nut. And that's true. Every once in a while. Got it. <laughs> Every once in a while, you're going to get it right. Every once in a while. But 99% of the time, Saul was foolish. And how can we avoid being foolish? Again, friends, it comes back to this book. This book. This book. Also in Psalm 19, which compares the word to honey, David says this. He says, the word of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you hear me on that? Maybe you, like me, you just feel like, I don't have it all together. I don't always know the wisest things to say. This will shock some of you, but sometimes people come up and ask me saying, how did you get so wise? You're so young. And I I disagree with every bit of that statement. I'm not that young anymore. And I know that I am not wise. But if stuff that comes out of my mouth is occasionally wise, there's only one reason. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. I got saved when I was 12. And at least once a year, a couple times extra in Bible college, I've read this book cover to cover. And I don't say that to brag to you. I say that to share with you. If you feel like me, and I feel like this all the time, incompetent. The word of God makes wise the simple. The word of God. The word of God. It's not my education, my upbringing. It's the unchanging, amazing word of God. And the good news is the same book is sitting in your laps tonight. Don't let the enemy take away your sword. Don't let the busyness of the battle keep you away from the honey dripping from this book. 
Don't let the fact that you have a problem with reading it stop you. Find a way. Talk to one of us about it. We'd love to help you. We love you guys. And we know what the word of God has done in our own hearts. Well, last thing tonight. Look at chapter 15 and we'll be done. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And so Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked Amalek from Hivilah to the way of Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amaleks, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the ox and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to destroy them all. Then everything despised and worthless, but they they utterly destroyed those. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I have greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose in the morning to meet Saul, it was told to Samuel, saying, Saul went up to Carmel, and indeed he has has set up a monument for himself. Pretty cool. (laughs) I feel like I need to build a monument to myself. I'm so awesome myself. And he said he had gone on on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Saul, and, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord! I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? Kind of inconvenient. He's like, I I completely obeyed you. And as he's saying this, he's like, (laughs) man, it's so inconvenient, inconvenient bleeding. But anyways, Saul said, (laughs) I'm sorry. They, I should just stick to my notes. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. It's for the Lord. And the rest we've utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. Shut your mouth. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, speak on. And so Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord make you king over Israel? But now the Lord has sent you on a mission and said, go, utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you not swoop down on the spoil to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on a mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took the best of the plunder. Now he's starting to blame the people. It's the people's fault. The people took the plunder of the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which we have not been utterly destroyed to sacrifice the Lord God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice? As in obeying the voice of the Lord... Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For the rebellion is of the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is of the iniquity of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please, pardon my sin. Return to me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 
And then Samuel turned around to go away. Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. And he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of the people and before Israel, return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Now he's being honest. He's not really repenting. He's just saying, let me look good in front of the people. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. And Samuel said, bring Agag, the king of Malachites, to me. And Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went up to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house of Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And really quickly, friends, God gives Saul one more task. Will he follow me? Go and destroy all of the Amalekites. Now again, we can look at that and say, ah, it doesn't make sense to me. Why would God want me to kill every man, woman, child, baby? What did the goats do? Again, we dealt with this subject when we went through the book of Numbers, when we went through the book of Joshua. If you want to go back and study those things, there's things about the cultural practices of these Canaanite nations that would make you vomit if we went into detail tonight. The things that they would do to their own children, we cannot understand in a Western mind. And God, yes, has the Israelites kill the children. But I believe, I believe that a child that dies goes right into the presence of the Lord. You want to debate that afterwards? You believe that God sends babies to hell? You can, you can talk to me afterwards. I believe babies go straight into the presence of the Lord. And so w- what does that tell us? What does that tell us? It tells us, I think, that instead of these kids being tortured, they grow up in the presence of Jesus. I think if you ask them someday when you get to heaven, they're okay with what God did. So the reality is, the reality is, the character of God is not in question. What's in question here is Saul's willingness to obey. Because he says there, I obeyed. But what he really did is he kept the best back for himself. The best of the sheep, the best of the lands, and, and probably the best of the people. Only Agag is mentioned, but we're going to find later that the Amalekites begin to multiply again. And that happened one of two ways. Either this king was allowed to have a child while he was in prison, maybe, or what's really happening is that they saved the best of the people. Saul has incomplete obedience. Either is possible. But we look at this and we say, was it really that important? Why does God get so upset that he won't, he won't just kill all the Amalekites? Bible students, hear me on this. When we get to 2 Samuel chapter 1, what do we find out? That eventually, Saul is killed by a guess who? An Amalekite. An Amalekite. Now, do you think the Lord knew that? Yes, is the correct answer. Yes. Do you think maybe, maybe in his infinite love, God says, I would spare you, my son. Get rid of that whole tribe. Well, I don't really understand why. I know you don't. But trust me on this. It's good for you. Saul, eh, doesn't matter. And he pays the price in the end. Now, why do I bring this up? Because you know 
God tells you and I to deal with things in our lives. The Amalekites are such a picture of the flesh in the word of God. And there are things that God says, Jason, I love you. You need to deal with this in your heart and life. And right then, I have a choice to be like Saul and say, well, Lord, let me reason with you. I mean, he has a lot of reasoning in this chapter, doesn't he? I just kept back the best to give it to the Lord. (laughs) We are so good at justifying things, aren't we? This was really for you, the Lord. That's, That's why I didn't deal with this, because I understand more than you do, and so this thing is good in my life. Or then he starts making excuses. It's not really me. It's those people. I would deal with this, but my wife, Lord, my wife. She's not here tonight, so I can say this. My wife, Lord. She's amazing. (laughs) Ten times more things would be dealt with in my life, except for the fact. Ten ten times less things would be dealt with in my life, except for my wife. Oh, man. Now that I've dug myself in my hole, let me jump out of it. (laughs) We can make all the excuses we want. We can try to justify our sin to the Lord. We need to realize what Saul didn't see that day, but we need to see with 2020 vision. He knows what will harm you. He knows what will eventually rise up and destroy you. And not because, oh, we talk about this a lot, but I, I haven't let it totally punch through my skull, so I keep repeating it to you. God doesn't make rules in heaven just to stop some kind of joyous experience in your life. He has his law because he loves you as a father. And he says, you obey me. You do what I'm telling you to do. And you know what? You're going to be spared some serious, serious pain. And if you choose to ignore me, he still loves you. His love doesn't change for you. But you and I are the one that suffers every single time. We have a choice. Be like Saul, incomplete obedience, another character flaw that we tolerate in our own lives, or we can be like Samuel and hack that thing to pieces. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, same people, same person, people. That was was false teaching right there. One person seems to be united on this subject. Jesus said, if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off. Does that mean God wants you to walk around without a hand? Absolutely not. It means you and I need to deal seriously with our sin. God says, completely destroy the Amalekites. What does that mean? He didn't like the Amalekites? No, it meant he knew it was good for King Saul and Saul wouldn't see it. Will you and I see it? Will you and I let the Lord deal with that issue? We all have that issue, don't we? Tolerate it, let it be, and suffer. Or let the Lord put it to death that you and I might be blessed. That's the choice. I think for me, I can look at every one of these five things and say, Lord, I see it in my own heart. So help me. Help me turn from trying to value who I am based on what others say about me. I want to be secure in you, Jesus. And when others achieve, I want to give them praise. I I, I don't want to be walking around in pride and followed by a fall. No way. Being impatient. Oh, Lord, teach us to trust, trust, trust. Being complacent. I'm okay. (laughs) No. Let's trust the Lord for great things like Jonathan. Oh, well, you know, I'm going to make foolish vows and just kind of be... Oh, Lord, help us to be wise by the power of your word.
And the wisest thing we can do is to obey. And when we sin, to be quick to repent and keep walking with Jesus. Because as we say, there's no one like Jesus. Amen? No one like Jesus. Father, thank you so much for your word for us tonight. And I pray as we go our way, Lord, may you just take one, two, in my case, all five of these things. And may you do the spiritual surgery that needs to be done. Lord, we want to be like David, a man after your own heart, a person that seeks after you, that wants your heart on subjects, that when we see inconsistencies in our own heart, we're quick to repent. Lord, that's what we want. That's what we desire. So Lord, would you do that in our hearts and lives tonight, even as we worship and go our way. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.